people spend their time, energy, and money in vastly different ways. For example, one will spend their time and money on health and wellness in an attempt to extend their life and quality of it, while another might spend it on entertainment and comfort. Still others will use their time and resources for charity work across the globe, and still others will use their resources for the latest gadgets, gizmos, and, and toys. There are a number of unmentioned ways that someone could use their time and resources, but the question is, why do we choose to use our time and resources in the way that we do? Or to put it more simply, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? And at the danger of oversimplifying this, what I think it comes down to most often is our underlying value system. What we value most in life will govern what we do, where we spend our resources, what we spend our time on. What we value most steers and directs what we do on a daily basis. So as we think about our own value system here this morning, I wonder what it is that you would say that you value most this morning. What is it that you are devoting your life towards? If people could see a snapshot of where you spend your, your time, your resources in a given day, a week, a month, a year, what would they say you treasure most? What you value most? As we think about these things, our text here this morning confronts us concerning what we value and what we treasure most. A difficult text from Jesus that targets what we love and most desire. This brings us back to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Would you please go ahead and open there in the copy of God's word? And we'll look at this account together. Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one was good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, 
Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. As we come to this text here this morning, we remember that Jesus has just taught his followers that those who would enter the kingdom of God must enter like children. They must enter with complete trust and dependence upon Jesus, who is the king over the kingdom. If they fail to receive the kingdom in this way, they will fail to enter at all. Now, as Jesus departs from this scene and sets off on this journey, we're told that a man runs up to Jesus and he falls down before him. As we've gone through Mark, we've seen all sorts of people coming up to Jesus, running up to Jesus, and they fall down before him. And whenever they do, it's nearly always a sign of desperation because they're facing some extraordinarily difficult circumstance. For instance, we might recall the leper who in Mark chapter 1 runs to Jesus and falls before him and then begs for Jesus to heal him. We might also think of the demon-possessed man in chapter 5 who comes and falls before Jesus, kneels before him. The demons controlling this man are terrified and in desperation plead for Jesus' mercy. And then right after this account, we read of Jairus, a leader of the synagogue, and he runs up to Jesus and he falls on his knees before him and he pleads that Jesus would save his daughter who is on the brink of death. And then following this account, there's a woman with an ailment of blood who falls before Jesus in desperation as she seeks his mercy. In each of these accounts, we see people falling down before Jesus, and they're doing so out of desperation. They see their need of him, and they plead with him. So as this man runs up to Jesus, notice he's not walking, he runs up to Jesus and he falls on his knees before him. This man is desperate about something. And we wonder, what is he desperate about? What is he going to ask Jesus to do? And his question to Jesus is surprising, and it's unexpected. He asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is what the man is desperate to know the answer to. What must I do to gain eternal life? Now I wonder, how might you answer that question? How would you answer that question if someone came up to you and said, good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? What would you say to that person? What wouldn't you say? How would you respond? Think about that for a moment because that's exactly the situation Jesus is in here. And as Jesus is our perfect example, let's listen to how he responds 
to this question. Jesus responds saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Did you expect Jesus to respond in this way? We find that rather than answer the man's question immediately, Jesus instead asks a question of his own. He asks him, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now we're probably wondering, why does Jesus begin by asking this man this question? Why does Jesus ask him this? And it's difficult to know for certain, and commentators are not all agreed on this point, but I think there are at least a couple different possibilities why Jesus asked him this. First, and without a doubt, he does this to cause the man to slow down, to slow down, to pause, and to truly think about what he's saying. Do you really know what you are saying in calling me good teacher? But in this statement, only God is good, Jesus may be challenging the man to reevaluate what goodness is. Does the man consider goodness as something that can be obtained through self-effort? Or does he realize, as Jesus points out, that only God is good? If we do not first realize that no one but God is good, we cannot be saved. We cannot gain eternal life. And perhaps Jesus is helping the man to realize this as he begins to speak with him. Another possibility here is that Jesus is challenging the man to realize the implication of his words. You called me good teacher, and only God is good. Do you really believe that I'm God? And if you do, will you follow what I'm about to tell you? So these are a different couple of possibilities of what Jesus might have meant with this question to the man. But whatever Jesus exactly meant here, he immediately follows this up saying, you know the commandments, and then proceeds to list the second half of the Ten Commandments having to do with behavior and relationships to others. So again, the man asks, what must I do to earn or gain eternal life? And Jesus basically says, keep the Ten Commandments. Were you expecting this? So now the question is, how will the man respond to Jesus' word? How will he respond to his reference to the Ten Commandments? The man responds, teacher, not good teacher, just teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. I've kept all of these commandments from my youth. The, the man responds by saying, I have. To the best of my knowledge, I've kept these basic commandments from my youth. Is that it? Is that all I have to do? We're probably wondering, has he really kept all the Ten Commandments his whole life? I mean, has he really kept these commandments from his youth? Has there never been a time where he failed in loving his neighbor as himself? And, and these are good questions. But notice that Jesus never pushes back on the man's statement about keeping the commandments. Jesus doesn't go there or rebuke him for his claim of keeping the Ten Commandments. 
the text leads us to believe that at least from the man's perspective, he has kept the commandments to the best of his knowledge. But get this, despite his keeping of the law and his perceived moral righteousness, he is still on his knees before Jesus in desperation. It's not good enough. He knows that there is something wrong and he's desperate to know what he's missing. Despite everything that this man has accomplished and his keeping of the law, he's still missing something and he knows it. Jesus senses this within the man. He sees that this man is searching for what he's missing. So Jesus looks at this seeker and he looks at him with love. Jesus loves this man. This man is authentically searching. He isn't trying to trap Jesus like the Pharisees did, but is genuinely seeking what he's missing. And out of love for this man, Jesus tells him what he's missing. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. This is what the man is missing. This is his problem. Now, we don't know it yet, but Jesus is identifying the problem the man is facing. And the problem stems from the fact that he is incredibly wealthy. The man loves his riches. He trusts in his riches. He hopes in his riches. And Jesus is saying to this man, this is the root of your problem. Your heart, above all, is set on your wealth. So give it away. Give it away to the poor. Gain treasure in heaven and come. Follow me, the source of life. This is what you're missing. So Jesus, in love, calls this man to come follow him. But if he's going to do this, he has to turn from his source of security, being in his own wealth, to being in Jesus alone. He has to turn from his reliance upon his own riches to relying upon Jesus for every good thing. He has to turn from depending on his money to depending on Christ alone. So Jesus calls for this man to give him his total allegiance, his trust and dependence, and to abandon anything that might sway him away from being fully committed to himself, his wealth. So how does this man respond? How does he respond? We read some of the most sad and tragic words in all of scripture here. He was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. The man weighs the cost and he goes away grieving. The cost of following Christ in his estimate is too much. In his value system, his worldly riches were more beautiful and captivating than following Jesus. His wealth and his estimate was worth more than Jesus, the author of life. So the man leaves. He goes away sorrowful. 
and we never hear of him again. At this moment, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples respond with astonishment. They're blown away by what Jesus just said. And really, we should be too if we're hearing him rightly. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. As those who live in America, all of us here this morning, we are wealthy beyond measure and should take to heart Jesus' statement here to the wealthy and rich. And even though you may think, no, I'm not that wealthy, you know, I'm not that rich in comparison to, to so-and-so, consider your own situation compared to their time. We have access to transportation, health care, grocery stores, and housing that they could have never dreamed of. In comparison to those in this time, the poor here in America are far richer than they So when Jesus says how hard and difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, we should be identifying with the wealthy. It is incredibly difficult. And then Jesus reinforces his statement, and he strengthens it in the following verse, saying, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus addresses his disciples as children this time. He uses this loving and caring language for them as they struggle to take in what he's just said. And then he repeats how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And to express just how difficult it is, he gives us an illustration. It's easier for a camel, one of the largest animals they could imagine, to to fit through the point of a needle, the smallest thing they could imagine, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So if you think of a large camel trying to fit through the, the point of the needle, you realize quickly it's impossible. That can't be done. And yet this already impossible scenario is easier is easier than a rich man being saved. That's us. So I think this is exactly how we're supposed to read it and understand it. And I'm sure many of you here this morning have perhaps heard it explained in other ways where they try to make this impossible scenario possible. You know, maybe you've heard the eye of the needles in reference to a gate of a city, which is super narrow, and so the camel would have to really get, you know, struggle to get through and, you know, contort its body to get through or something like that. Or perhaps you heard that the word camel should be translated rope, you know, trying to somehow make this impossible scenario possible. But the problem with, with both of these interpretations is that there is, there's little to no support for them at all. There's very, very little. And it's not what Jesus meant. He meant to communicate the impossibility of the rich entering the kingdom of God. So as I already mentioned, I believe that we should take Jesus' word here at face value. We are meant to imagine a large camel trying to fit through the point of a needle, and we're to recognize the impossibility of it, and then be further astounded that impossible scenario is easier 
than us, the wealthy, entering the kingdom of God or being saved. So then the disciples are even more astonished than before. They were already bewildered, but now they are further astounded. And they respond saying, then who can be saved? There's no hope for this rich Jewish moral guy, then there's certainly no hope for us. It was often assumed that a good Jew who kept the law and was wealthy was blessed by God. God looked at Jews who kept the law and he blessed them with material riches. And they might have referenced Job, who was blessed materially by God for his righteousness. Or they might have looked at Abraham or David or Solomon and their riches as evidence of God's blessing upon them. So rich Jewish people who kept the law were looked upon favorably. Their wealth, in a sense, was evidence of their righteousness before God. Based on the reaction of the disciples, this is how they are viewing the situation. If this man who kept the law and has been blessed by God, material with riches by him, if he can't be saved, then who can? There's no way that we're going to have a chance in the world of entering the kingdom of God if he can't be saved. But this is exactly where Jesus wants them. And this is exactly where he wants us here this morning. He wants us to sense our helplessness, our hopelessness, and our need. For this is the doorway to hope. This is our only hope. So Jesus looks at them intently, just as he did with the rich man. And he says to them, with man, it is impossible. It is impossible. You got that right. But not with God. Because all things are possible with God. In other words, in your own effort, it's impossible. You can't save yourself. Your own efforts, your own riches, your own righteousness will not save you. It's futile to try and save yourself. Your only hope is God. For all things are possible for him. He alone can save. So you must trust and depend upon him. This brings us back to the previous account of Jesus and the children that we learned about last week. We remember last week that Jesus said, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you will never enter at all. And when he said this, he was saying, unless you look to Jesus like a child in total dependence and trust, you will not be saved unless you place your complete trust and dependence in King Jesus and his finished work. So for both the rich and the poor, their only hope is Jesus. But while the poor have little to nothing holding them back from trusting in Jesus as their only hope, the rich have the massive obstacle of their wealth as they struggle to see their need for him. So this is where we're at today. Our wealth can be a massive obstacle to our seeing our need for Jesus. We struggle to see our need for him because we are so rich. 
We would rather chase the illusion of happiness, security, and joy that money promises us. We would rather put our faith in money for salvation rather than Jesus. Why do we need Jesus when we already have it all? But though our situation is dire, we recognize that Jesus' word here gives us hope. It gives us life. We're given hope that no one is beyond the reach of God. So if you are wealthy, and you are, and if you have received Jesus as king over your life, know that it's purely the work of God that you are saved. It is nothing that you have done. It has been given to you freely. So praise and thank him. Cherish the salvation that he has granted you if you know him as king over your life. If you're wealthy and you're struggling, perhaps seeing your riches as more valuable than Jesus, I encourage you to reevaluate your value system. Know that your riches and your wealth will never deliver to you true joy, security, and salvation. It can never fill that hole or void in your life. It is merely a mirage that's here for a moment and then gone the next. It promises life, but will end up leaving you dead and empty. Know instead that Jesus is worth everything. He is our ultimate treasure. He is our source of life and joy in those who follow him and prize him above all. Never regret it. As we continue to the last portion of our passage, Peter switches the topic back to themselves. He switches the topic back to themselves, and he says, Look, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. Unlike this rich man who failed to do what you asked, Lord, we have. We've left everything behind. We don't have riches or, or wealth holding us back from following you. You can almost sense the, uh, the smug, superior tone coming from Peter. Look at us, Jesus. We succeeded where this man has failed. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him. In fact, he actually praises his disciples here. And while the disciples have failed miserably time and time and time again, this is one thing that they've actually done right. They did leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And so Jesus commends them with several promises saying, Truly I tell you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields, with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So we, as we close out here this morning, Jesus gives several promises to his disciples who have left everything to follow him. He promises them a family and a home that will love and care for them now at this time. Now at this time, not later in the future, now. What family is Jesus promising to his disciples? What's he talking about here? I think what he's speaking about is the new family of God 
that Jesus has been establishing throughout Mark. Jesus is bringing together believers in himself as the new family of God. So as the disciples follow after Christ, they're gaining spiritual brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and a home, the church, for forsaking everything in pursuit of Christ. I think if we go back to Mark 3, it further supports what we're saying here. In Mark 3, there are some people that approach Jesus, and they say, Jesus, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And then Jesus replies, saying, who are my mother and brothers? It is those who do the will of God. These are my mothers, brothers, sisters. This is my true family. And so drawing that connection to this promise is the realization that Jesus is uniting together his followers as a family, the family of God. And for those of us who do follow Jesus, above all, here this morning, Jesus has fulfilled this promise. We are united together as the family of God. We are brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, and children to one another. Our union in Christ is deep as we have made him the most important thing about us. And we're united in this truth. So even as you perhaps look around, as you think of those within our assembly, look at them as family and care for one another, love one another as those united by Christ. See one another as precious and care for them because in Christ he has united us together as family. But not only does he promise his disciples a new family that will care for them and love them, but he also promises them, if you noticed here, that there will be persecution. There will be persecution. It's interesting to note that Jesus never really promises an easy life to his disciples. It's not, come to Jesus and I promise you an easy life filled with eternal bliss. Quite frequently, we see Jesus saying the exact opposite. Now that you're following me, expect to be persecuted as I was. Expect to suffer as I suffered for you. So if and when persecution does happen to this church, will we endure? Will we see the infinite worth of Jesus and so willingly accept the suffering that comes for being Jesus' disciple? Or will we, like the rich man, say, not worth it, and walk away? My hope is that when that time comes, we will be so filled with the beauty and the glory of Jesus that we would joyfully endure, even as Christ has done in our stead. And then third here, he promises his disciples eternal life. The story began with the rich man seeking eternal life. And now Jesus ends by saying that those who place their hopes solely in Jesus will gain it. Those who trust in him completely and depend upon him will gain eternal life and entrance into the kingdom of God. What the rich young man failed to get, the disciples found by following Jesus and treasuring him above all. And the same is true for his disciples today. And then last, he promises a great reversal in God's kingdom. Many who are considered first in this lifetime will be considered last in God's kingdom. 
those who would be considered last in this lifetime, whether because they started out as poor or had nothing to start off with or because they gave up everything to follow Christ, these people in the great reversal will be considered first in God's kingdom. He will reward them. They will be honored. But those who are considered first in our society today, many of them will be last because they did not forsake everything to follow Christ. In fact, they may not even find themselves in the kingdom of God. So this is our text before us. It's a challenging text that calls for our response and one that we desperately need as we are rich beyond measure in this country. So as we've heard and seen Jesus' word here, how are we to respond? And there's no doubt some difficulty knowing how exactly to respond to Jesus' radical call. Perhaps even as you've been thinking on this text as we've gone through it, maybe you're wondering, do I really have to sell everything that I have in order to follow Jesus? After all, that's what Jesus called the rich man to do. And it seems like his disciples did this. So do I have to really give up everything in order to follow Jesus. And if I don't, why not? It seems like that's what Jesus is calling for. I think there are at least a couple different ways we can answer this. But first, I would like to simply show that not everyone who followed Christ gave up everything, and that was okay. Jesus was okay with this. For instance, we think of Zacchaeus, who was a genuine convert of Christ, And in a show of fidelity to Jesus, he says in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, Look, Lord, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Then what does Jesus say to Zacchaeus here? Does he say, actually, whoa, whoa, hold up here, Zacchaeus. Actually, you need to give everything away. You you just said, I want everything. Does he say that to to Zacchaeus here? No, he doesn't say that. He says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. That's what he says to Zacchaeus. So is the requirement to sell everything always necessary to follow Jesus and receive eternal life? No. The answer in short is no. But then that brings up the question, well, why did Jesus demand that this rich young man give up everything? Why did he issue this unique calling to this rich young man. In short, it's because he knew that wealth had captured this man's heart. This man's heart was ruled by his riches. As we've already mentioned, he loved his riches. He trusted in his riches. He hoped in his riches. And Jesus wouldn't accept this. He wanted this man's complete and utter devotion or nothing at all. He wanted the man to love him, trust him, and hope in him alone. And Jesus wouldn't settle for the man being torn between his wealth and his devotion to Christ. Jesus demanded all of him or nothing at all. And his riches proved to get in the way. So by God's grace, following Jesus doesn't mean that all of us will necessarily be called to renounce all our wealth, or all our money, or our family, or house for the sake of Christ. But it does mean that we must renounce our claim on it, because it doesn't belong to us. 
It belongs to King Jesus, who is our ruler. For this man, his riches proved to be the fatal stumbling block between him and following Jesus. And while riches and wealth may be a stumbling block for some here this morning, it may be something else that we value and love above Jesus. So in love, I want to let you know, as Jesus does, that he will not tolerate partial allegiance. He is jealous for your complete devotion. He wants all of you, not just a portion of your life, but all of it. And he wants, most of all, to be treasured and valued by you more than anything else in this world. He will not settle for second place. So if you are worshiping something as superior or more valuable than Jesus, know, know in love that he will not forever tolerate your worship of other gods. Whether it's the God of money, entertainment, comfort, respectability, sex, country, politics, family, or some other God of your own making, Jesus knows what is most precious to you, what you worship above all. And he demands that is what is most important and precious about you is him. He demands to be your most prized treasure. So our call is to value Christ above everything and to see his infinite worth, to devote ourselves to him completely and willingly and joyfully, abandoning all other idols or gods of our own, or of our own making, for he's worth it. This will look different a bit different for everyone here in this room here this morning because we all have different things competing for our heart's affection and desires. But Jesus' call is the same for all of us. Are we willing to treasure and trust him above all or will we instead worship something else as supreme? As we began the sermon this morning, I mentioned that what we value most will govern everything about us. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that what we will be as a church is one that prizes Christ above all and that our church would display the priceless treasure that he is in action and deed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we see your infinite worth. You are the author of life and you have given us this life through your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would help us to see his value and that we would adjust our own value systems to see him as most valuable above all. If there are idols in our hearts or other things that we worship as ultimate besides Jesus, we ask that you would help us to repent and to churn and to behold the glories of Christ. May he be the most important thing about us. May our life ooze with Jesus as we seek to follow after him. Give us grace to be your disciples and to show others the superiority of Christ in all things. For he is our joy giver, he is our peace, and he is our comfort. May we look to you alone, Christ, and nothing else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.